Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. I'd like to commence by acknowledging that this event is taking place on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and to pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. Now, as everybody who comes to public events knows, acknowledging the traditional custodians is pretty customary now in public events. Um, but given the ongoing violations of the rights of Indigenous people in this country and on this land, that acknowledgement has really a singular significance tonight as we mark the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration and look forward to the next 70 years of human rights protections. So might our first intention tonight be that this next 70 years be 70 years in which the ongoing legacy of colonialism and systematic violence against the rights of Indigenous peoples comes to a final end. Let it not be in 70, but in seven years, that we can stand here and say that the commitment to human rights has truly come home and Indigenous peoples finally enjoy the rights that they've never ceded. I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the University of Sydney, Sydney Ideas and the Evatt Foundation to this which is the final event of a series of events that we've had over the last week to mark the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This series commenced last week with a play that was set at the time of the adoption of the UDHR um, in a conversation between Mary Ellis Evatt and Eleanor Roosevelt. And then last night, Elizabeth Everett, Gillian Triggs and Tanya Plibersek reflected on where Australia has been and where we are now with respect to human rights. And tonight, we're taking up the question of the future. In this sense, we're marking today the anniversary by considering the generative, generative possibilities of the document, and that seems to me to be the best way to mark the anniversary. Like all truly powerful founding documents, the Universal Declaration should never be read as a full stop that comes at the end of a set of decisions. It's an aspiration, it's a set of principles, and it's an invitation to elaborate. And as the, is the case with any piece of positive law, the declaration that the General Assembly adopted on December 10th, 1948, was a creature of its times. True, insofar as it called for an end to discrimination based on factors like race and sex and nationality, it went beyond the norms that were actually operational at the time, and it called for all nations of the world in 1948 to be their better selves. But even in their aspirations, the authors of the Universal Declaration couldn't see what we can see now, not because we're better, but because we're a bit further on. They had only a thin understanding of the insidious and structural character of gender and race-based discrimination. They were insufficiently alive to the way in which the very categories of discrimination that were instantiated in the Universal Declaration, categories like sex and race and nationality, homogenised those groups and rendered invisible particular forms of discrimination experienced by people with non-dominant identities within or outside those groups. The rights of Indigenous peoples, people with disability, LGBTQI people were completely invisible in the Universal Declaration. 
and the idea that rights and justice needed to be accorded to beings other than human beings, to non-human animals and to the environment, would likely have seemed preposterous in 1948, although I have to say it seems preposterous to many people in 2018 also. Today, though, we have no excuse for those sorts of oversights. This is in part because the people who were previously excluded from the process of articulating human rights have refused their marginalisation. We should have no illusions that the recognition that has been expanded has been accorded as some type of act of generosity or insight. It's been beaten out of the system. It's also because the crises that have been generated or aggravated by these systematic exclusions are biting with a vengeance and a gravity that we can no longer foreclose. The massive flows of refugees, the systematic violence and discrimination against women, people of colour, LGBTQI people, Indigenous peoples, people with disabilities, the persistent failure to recognise non-human animals and the earth as being beings worthy of ethical considerability, rights and justice, all of these have bequeathed us a world that cannot declare itself the fulfilment of the age of rights. So our conversation this evening, with all of this in the background, is not to be one of where we have fallen short. Tonight we're dedicated to how some of us, we or some of us, are seeking to fulfil the highest aspirations of the human rights idea. Now, when you work in the field of human rights, you can become drowned in the stories of injustice, failure, and suffering. But one of the exquisite qualities of the field, of the human rights field, is that within it, there are always people who are absolutely certain that it doesn't have to be the way that it is. There are always people who have no time to tarry with failure, and they have no time to tarry with failure because they're too occupied creating paths forward and inviting other people to walk by their side. We're privileged to have six of those people here with us tonight. Our first speaker on the panel is Larissa Baldwin. Larissa is from the Wijibal clan of the Bunjalung Nation. She cur currently leads GetUp's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander campaigns and strategy nationally, building partnerships and front line, um, with frontline communities and empowering First Nations people to advocate for change. Larissa was the co-founder and previously the National Director of SEED, Australia's first Indigenous Youth Climate Network. After Larissa, Dulce Munoz is a mother, feminist, refugee advocate. She's the national convener of Mums for Refugees, um, a grassroots network of mothers that advocates for social, legal and material aid for people seeking asylum and people from refugee backgrounds. She collaborates with the National Justice Project and Human Rights for All. She was a finalist in the 2017 Do-Gooder. I think they need to rename that. Um, <laughs> and she's passionate about the role of motherhood as a site of social change. Naz Campanella is going to speak next. Naz is a journalist and newsreader with the ABC and Triple J. Um, Naz is totally blind and has a neurological condition called Charcot-Marie-Tooth which means she can't read Braille. Naz completed a communications degree at the University of Technology, Sydney, majoring in journalism. She started as a cadet with the ABC in 2011 and took up a news reading position with Triple J in 2013, becoming the first blind news reader in the world to read and operate the studio completely by herself live to air. Naz, 
really great to tell good stories. <laughs> Naz travels the world to speak at events and helps to inspire um, and motivate students, teachers and parents and industry on issues ranging from inclusive education, adaptive technology and supporting women to climb the corporate ladder. Fourth speaker is Danny Zanadu, um, who was supposedly in my class but was my teacher. Uh, <laughs> Danny has been involved in advocacy and education in the queer community for 25 years. Um, they started as a sexuality officer at, uni at Lismore University at 17, and they've gone on to take several roles in academia, advisory boards, social justice conferences, and public speaking, as well as modeling for trans visibility. In the arts, Danny makes political statements through their performances at kink and queer gatherings. Danny was the first person in New South Wales to be registered as gender non-specific by New South Wales Roads and Maritime Services. And Danny is owned by three precious adopted guinea pigs, one of whom is trans. <laughs> Continues to evolve in their sexuality, physicality, and in academia. I love that. Um, and finally, uh, Dinesh Wadiwell, who's a senior lecturer in human rights and socio-legal studies at the University of Sydney. Uh, Dinesh has over 15 years' experience working in civil society organisations, including in anti-poverty and disability rights roles. He's the author of a really extraordinary book, The War Against Animals, and he's currently writing a book on animals and capitalism. Dinesh has been really instrumental in building coalitions between scholars and disabled people's organisations to ensure that as Australia takes up its new responsibilities under the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture, it attends to the experience of people with disability. This one, yes. Jingiwala, um, my name is Larissa. Um, I'm a Wujibal woman, and uh, first, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the Gadigal people of your nation, elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the room. Um, I always get a bit, I'm a little bit flustered because I've been very busy over the last couple of days, but I always get a little bit weird about speaking at these things. So I'm like, I feel like I don't have the credentials. Like I, I don't I identify as an activist and I don't identify as a conservationist and I don't really engage with the idea of like academic sphere of human rights and, and talk about it in this way. I think for Aboriginal people more generally when we talk about the struggles that our, you know, families and communities have been going through um, since colonisation. Um, I feel like there was a point in my life where I realised that Aboriginal and First Nations politics in this country is a game of football, political football, and at some point you realise that you're the football in it and you understand how policies that are turned out from governments affect your life in real terms. Um, and I guess my coming into this, I feel like I'm, like I just con my way through everything because I have a whole bunch of jobs that I've made up that people have paid me for to do and I don't know that I'm actually um, qualified but I just take the money and do whatever I want to do. So that's my, that's what I do um, and now get up is paying me. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, when I was younger I was really dragged into stuff um, around uh, going to a lot of land council meetings, a lot of talking about aspirations around land justice and Aboriginal rights and what our aspirations and self-determination meant. And I feel like I was raised in kind of that space. And somewhere in that, I used to get dragged along to 
um, Aboriginal Health Council meetings that our elders had set up, and I think through that, that and literally I was dragged along because I could use a computer, and my aunties and uncles and grandparents didn't have an education, so I got pulled along to these sort of sorts of things, and just through that um, relationship that I have with my you know elders, I, I felt a big sense of responsibility to keep working and understanding and being able to see how much work they had put in to get to where we had to. One thing that really became clear to me as a young person is that I don't have anything that is afforded to me through government policy without the work of my old people. Um, and I, as a young person, feel like I have a responsibility to carry that on. So I guess my journey through activism, um, I was born on country and uh, moved up to Brisbane um, about 10 years ago um, and just got really involved with the Brisbane Blacks community up there, which is also a collective of Aboriginal activists up there. And um, through that, always been really interested in land justice and self-determination um, and grew up really loving science and just really wanted to be involved in like climate stuff. But if you looked at the climate movement even five years ago, you would know that it was very white, very much talked about the idea of like this big conservationist thinking, and I really cared about climate change because the first time I heard about it, I remember being in high school and they were talking about, you know, how the country was going to warm across um, Australia, and I remember thinking, like, wow, that's really going to affect our communities. Um, and if you actually look at the scale of climate change and what it means, it's going to mean a large-scale removal of people from country. And so as an Aboriginal person, I was like, people need to be talking about this. And so I started to get involved into the climate movement and realised that actually this space doesn't want to talk about communities and land justice. What they want to talk about is the Great Barrier Reef and cute animals and conservation areas and that sort of stuff. So I'm a bit of a troublemaker. And so we hatched a plan with a, um, a young Bundjalung woman called Millie Telford to go in and play good cop, bad cop with the climate movement and see if they would make space for an Indigenous climate organisation that just talked to our mob about climate change. Um, and a, we had a big plan to basically reframe the conversation in Australia from climate action to climate justice. And we were very successful in doing that. And um, the Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network, which I've just stepped out of this year, um, has hundreds of young people across the um, network, across the country, talking about um, Aboriginal rights and climate change. And I think stepping out of that for me, really, and getting more involved in doing campaigning, talking about narrative, getting the media involved in our issues and that sort of stuff, I really started to see that it's not... I couldn't just talk about the, the slice of the pie that was climate change. There are so many issues on that that it's going to impact that as an, a young person in a space... Um, advocating for our people and training people and helping people to advocate and helping people to build up media profiles and talking on all these issues that I kind of put, got myself into a box where I would like defined by an organisation because of a charity status. Um, and that made me think about that's why I left the Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Movement, but also it's the, in real terms like the idea of how big and wide, widespread the climate crisis is, how critical these decades are, this decade is. Um, yeah, I, it's not enough for us to just be pigeonholed into issues. And so for me and, and I guess my activism, where I've come from, I really felt like we needed to move some of the big problems is that our communities really are in crisis. If you look, look across all the national targets of something like the Closing the Gap, like, like as, a, as an example, we're not only just failing across targets, we're going backwards. If you look at things like the Indigenous Advancement um, 
funding stream is, is failing, it's wound up frontline services. And so I started to feel like a lot of pressure over the last two years to move into broader work. Um, and that's what I have done through moving to GetUp. But um, I was supposed to talk about, yeah, so that's kind of where we're at and like talking about how, you know, really in terms of, if you, even if you look at um, stuff at like the, you know, all these reports have come down um, all this work was done 25 years ago around, you know, really having good goodwill in, the, I guess, the broader Australian public about where we're going with Aboriginal rights. And I feel like a lot of the people in across the country have really kind of gone to sleep on a bunch of our issues. And I feel like where we've seen something like the Native Title Act and where that has been wound back into a regime that no longer benefits people. When you look at just different um, funding streams and that sort of stuff, and there's so many different stuff that I felt like I wanted to be able to talk about our issues again. I felt like so much of the media that is out there just talks about Aboriginal issues as we are the problem. And there we really need to run targeted strategies around how we can um, create change, but also creating putting our narrative into it and not just having such conservative um, problem-driven narratives in the media which silence our communities and people who can advocate. So part of shifting to where I'm at as well has been led by being at Seed and seeing that, um, I guess, an online platform. If you look at Facebook, we have a one of the highest takes-ups for a um, race of people around the world. All Aboriginal people are on it. I think it was because Telstra had some plan where they gave Facebook for free in remote communities. So we have a very big participation rate on social media. Um, and for me, the idea of bringing, um, knowing that nothing that we have achieved for us has, has happened without a social movement, um, knowing that we can utilize online platforms and also the fact that um, GetUp as an organization is, some of you might know about it, but has a million members and is a place to start to have conversations about a lot of the issues we go forward. I feel like I can't talk about one specific issue because there's so much to talk about. But, um, yeah, as a campaigner and, and as someone in this space, moving into working on online platforms but also working out, you know, how we can use the kind of old tried and true of, like, you know, when I was younger, even when we talked about the aspiration of land rights, we'd come to a meeting, there'd be 800 mob in the room, and we'd be talking about what we wanted to change for our country, what you know, what we wanted to have for our people, and... I feel like through a lot of top-down government policies, but the idea that Aboriginal advocacy has turned into this very much cherry-picked leaders and peak Aboriginal bodies, national bodies, it doesn't represent the diversity of our communities and the spread of our communities and what our communities actually need on the ground. So it's the policy doesn't fit anymore, and it never fits. And you, if you look at all the reports that have come out this year, there has been every report that has come out has said this so-and-so regime is failing, this policy is failing, we're not meeting national targets, all this sort of stuff, and it's failure after failure. And I think unless we engage our mob back in the conversation and, you know, recreate those spaces where we can have conversations about what we actually want to see, then we're not going to be able to change something. So that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. That conversation was all over the place, but it's me. Thank you. Okay, I want to first start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land. As an immigrant myself, for me it's very important to acknowledge that every day I wake up in Karigal and want the land of the Royal Nation and my child is growing up 
and she feels very privileged to, um, and her life is enriched by the wisdom and generosity. I want to also to acknowledge people in the room with lived experience of seeking asylum in this country, with lived experience also of facing discrimination every day because of disability, uh, neurodiversity, gender and race. Um, my journey in advocacy and human rights has been of acknowledging my own privilege. The privilege that I have as a migrant, as a migrant who took the plane, my husband studied a master's in this university and everything was easy. Acknowledging that my color of skin can be a weapon that I can use to humanize refugees and migrants and also a great opportunity to um, connect motherhood with activism. So I'm very grateful to be here tonight. Um, I'm the National Convener of Moms for Refugees. We are a grassroots network of mothers and, care and carers from different backgrounds. And today we are 4,216 active members around Australia and New Zealand. And we have around 98,000 social media followers. And we work with the National Justice Project, with Human Rights for All, with Julianne Bowside, with the Asylum Seeker Resource Center, and we do absolutely everything. Um, I think my journey, as I told you, was about acknowledging my privilege. And <clears throat> when I talk about acknowledging the privilege, it's normally not a pleasant thing to do. You normally don't acknowledge privilege until it hits you in the face, and that's what happened to me. Um, my child, who is in the room, was born with um, talipes, and it's a very simple procedure. It's just her foot was a little bit crooked and she needs surgery. And so she was having surgery and the screens of babies in Nauru and the moldy tents were showing in the screens. And I got really angry. <clears throat> I got angry because there I was, a migrant just like those mothers abandoning that island with my same skill color. And I was, showed so much compassion. And my child was so well cared. And I got really, really angry. So I needed to do something, and I went to this vigil, and I met Moms for Refugees. And I fell in love. It was love at that side. It redefined who I was. It was beyond me having an accent, or me being privileged, or me just anything. It was this connection that we understood that motherhood overrides policies, and it overrides religion sometimes, or most of the times, I might say. Uh, it overrides absolutely everything because there is this human connection with the experience that it comes. So we have grown a lot. Um, we have learned a lot. It's been four years of massive experiences. Um, so when they, you ask me how, and in my contemporary said, how do we do advocacy and activism? I think we do it like moms have always done it. We activate our superpowers and <laughs> we organize, we educate, we empower, we, cho we choose actively every day to teach our kids the power of our voices. Um, we decided that Moms for Refugees is not always, is not only activism. We try to be as much as possible an ally to people seeking asylum and we aim to create this space where they lead the way. Um, we have a lot to learn in that space. From now, you, can, you need to <clears throat> be aware of the Mexican who is not a refugee, but is a migrant. And I'm hoping the next generation of moms refugee will be ones who lead by example and tell the story about their lived experience. So um, I just want to say that this is moms refugees is just one of the many faces 
of the response that this country has to cruel policies. Um, there are say 68 million people displaced in this world. There have never been so many displaced humans right now. Um, what we have done to people that we send to Minos and Nauru is a crime. What we have done to people by cutting their support system, the SRS um, payments, is also a disgrace. And the only way you can understand is by knowing people who have been affected. So when you go and visit a family of a single mother of six living in what with $100 a fortnight and paying rent in Sydney, and when she tells you that she was only able to feed her kids rice and tea for 10 days, 20 kilometers away from here, then you understand the real face of policies and the real weight it has in our communities. So this is me. <laughs> I'm a journalist and newsreader for the ABC and Triple J, and I also happen to be totally blind and have a neurological condition, which Danny mentioned earlier, which affects my sensitivity, my balance, and my muscle tone. These two conditions, I think, make me fairly qualified to speak on behalf of people with disabilities. My advocacy journey began very unexpectedly. I was simply doing my job, living my life, going about doing all the things that everybody else does. I was reading the news for Triple J in my first week in 2013, and I started to receive emails, emails from other people with disabilities or parents of children with disabilities. And they would say things to me like, it's so great to see someone with a disability in the public sphere. Your story is one that we can emulate in our family. Come and talk to us and tell us how to do it. Or my child is struggling with finding work or school or is facing discrimination and we want some help with how to deal with it. And all of a sudden, I'd gone from just being a newsreader and trying to go about my day-to-day -day as someone with a disability to all of a sudden helping other people. And I didn't realize by doing little things, you can make such a huge impact. Obviously, the cause that I am really passionate about is just advancing the general rights for people with disabilities so that they can live, quote, normal lives. It is of critical importance going into the future for several key reasons. Accessibility. There are still so many public spaces that are inaccessible to people with varying disabilities. Train stations, buses, even parliament. Only when Jordan Steele-Jong entered the Senate as a Greenness member did we discover that there was a lack of accessible bathrooms, the doorways and corridors weren't big enough for a wheelchair to get around and turn around in, and because of his presence in politics, we were able to change that. High unemployment rates. Something like 
just over 2 million people in Australia identify as of working age, that is between 15 and 64, and also have a disability. And yet in the public sector, something like 3.6 of those people are in work. Those in the private sector, we don't have quantitative research on just yet. This gives you an example of the inequity faced when it comes to employment for people with disabilities. According to Section 23 of the Human Rights Declaration, we're expected to have access to fair and equitable work, pay and conditions. And yet so many of us are out of work, so many of us are underpaid, that is below the average wage, or we are required or asked to do internships or work experience for nothing. And we're made to think that it's okay to be asked to do that for long periods of time. I don't have to give you quantitative evidence that stigma and discrimination is still happening. I sit here as someone who has faced it for years and who still faces it. Scholarships at university. I think there could be plenty more when it comes to having access to funding to actually study or to find accommodation. The way I get around my or being an advocate, I think is best described by showing you a few examples. So the first one is that my husband and I were shopping last week in a huge department store. You can guess which one, I'm sure. And we went up to the counter to purchase our items. And the woman thought it was appropriate to say, oh, wow, isn't it lovely that you're helping her? My husband turned around and said, I'm her husband. We help each other. And she said, oh, yes, but, you know, she's really lucky to have you. To which I responded, actually, love, he's lucky to have me. <laughs> Another example is that sometimes I'm simply going about my day walking to the bus stop. And I might have my hair and makeup done nice and have a nice dress on. And someone will stop me and say, where are you going? You look so lovely. Just to work. <laughs> But the point is people think it's unusual. People think it's special that we are either married or working or paying taxes or have a mortgage or studying or doing everything that they might also be doing. But it's going about my day-to-day -day life showing people that I'm normal and I hate that word. That's how... I have become an activist, and that's how I go about it. I'm a quiet achiever, and I think for me that works because it's just about the little things that I get to do every day that show people that people with disabilities are just like everybody else. I also love that I've been able to act as a mentor for young people with disabilities so doing everything from teaching them how to write resumes, interview skills, self-advocacy, teaching them that it's not okay for someone to ostracize them at school or it's not okay for them to be taken out of the classroom if that's not what they want and be taught one-on-one -on -one away from their peers. To have input in how they live their life and to have input in the support and services that they have access to. Thank you.
it's been really interesting to hear everyone's stories because everyone has said something that resonates with me. Um, you're saying, you know, with people emailing and, and contacting you in regards to uh, referring people on when they needed support. I can relate to that. I can relate to you starting get up and starting your own stuff to make things happen where you were dissatisfied. Um, and <laughs> the rice and tea that got me on that one. So I just realised we're actually going to be sharing a little bit about our personal stuff. So I And I was thinking about the word sexuality officer as you said it, Danny, and that started because I grew up in a small country town. There was no such thing as anyone that was queer unless it was used as a descriptive derogatory term or gay or trans. And I got lucky and met some beautiful people that introduced me to the queer community up near Lismore where I come from. And I started working for the SRC, the Student Rep Council at Southern Cross Uni when I was 17 because I wanted to, because I got free copies of all the gay newspapers from Sydney. And I was like, oh, wow, I can't wait to, you know, go out and be fabulous and do these things. Um, and it started as a lesbian officer. And then I came to realise that that was a more gender-specific term that maybe didn't resonate with everybody um, that was accessing support there. So that's how that kind of started for me. And it's come out now that I'm 41 and transgender. And <laughs> I'm interested in... Um, advocating for people's rights in regards particularly to accessing medical care. Um, again, like you say, with statistics, there's an invisibility there that I think is relevant in the transgender community, particularly for maybe trans men accessing places where they can get their cervix looked at and things like that. So I do things as I go along day to day. I find, though, that I do hit a wall with bureaucracy. At the moment, I'm petitioning Medicare to get a gender non-specific status. Uh, which would be great because there is a lot of issues I think in Australia where the state and federal legislation doesn't allow for someone to have streamlined identity documents particularly and I think access to medical care and appropriate identity documents is one of our colonised basic human rights um, and that's something that I, I kind of work with a little bit and um, totally forgot what I was going to say then. <laughs> Um, but when I first started, I think that the reason why I made headway is because I started looking at uh, legislation around, for example, the Australian Human Rights Commission, who amended the 2013 Sex Discrimination Act to make it unlawful to discriminate against anyone based on sexual orientation, gender presentation or intersex status. And I feel like I have a lot of privilege here in being an English-speaking person in a colonised country and, and in being articulate. Um, but I still feel that it is a form of discrimination when, for example, last week I had to go to a women's clinic to get my cervix looked at. That's not okay. Like, not just women have cervixes. So I've been riding with them for a little while. They've actually offered me, they offered me the title of Mr. or Ms. And I said, well, actually, neither of them are correct legally or appropriately. So they've actually changed that. They're associated with RPA. So that's really good. There's now an MX title there. So I do everyday things like that. I'm also interested in how trans people uh, navigate liminal spaces in gender in a very, very gendered world. It's in our language, it's in the forms we fill out. It's every time, I had to be, I had to choose a gender to sign up to Stan the other day. Um, I just went to the toilets down here with one of my partners who's a trans man and had somebody walk in and see two men and then walk out and of course look at the female sign and look at us both and then walk out. What I do is also I work with my, particularly with my gym, I'm not comfortable going to a man's toilet, just don't want to. I don't see why I should have to. Um, but um, 
So I just I write emails to them. I'm working with them and with Acorn at the moment to try and get some posters around saying, look, you know, if you see someone in a toilet and you don't think they belong there, just keep walking. You know, they know better. Um, so I mean, I'm, I'm, I get a little bit frustrated and disappointed that we, we live in this world where there's so many theorists out there like Judith Butler and Kate Bornstein and Jack Hyberstone that have already worked with gender and taken it apart. And for as long as gender is going to be an issue, for as long as we put the onus of gender incongruence being an issue on the individual and look at medicalizing that situation, um, I, I think that can be dangerous. We're not changing society. We're not looking at the, the language that we use and how we approach people, for example, saying ladies and gentlemen when we address a group of people, for example. We exclude a lot of people when we do that. So I'm interested in that as well. Um, and I think it's particularly pertinent at the moment um, because a lot of trans issues are coming up in the media, which is pretty cool for the most part. Um, but unfortunately, the, the, the narrative that I'm hearing is very much a binary-based way of looking at things, as in people are usually trans women or trans men or transitioning to. And that brings up, for me, issues around when, have we when, when are we trans enough? When have we finished transitioning? And why is it that people uh, sometimes use words that indicate that they were born in the wrong body? Because I wasn't born in the wrong body, and I don't have body shame about that. But some people take on that narrative. It has become pathologized. And recently, uh, the DSM-5 in 2013 um, and other health organizations are now removing trans as a mental health condition. So I'm curious to see where that goes. So I think it's important that we, we keep an eye on that as well. Um, and you know, just in being colonized, we now use this word non-binary, like it's a new thing, and it's not. We have almost always have uh, Indian hijabs, uh, sorry, is it hi hijras? I think I can't pronounce it right. Hijras, um, there's always been twin spirits of indigenous American people. People have always been a bit gender queer, essentially. Like Thailand has 18 different genders, and in Australia, basically we've got the choice of one or the other. And I've been put in a position whereby my license says I'm gender non-specific, but my passport says I'm intersex, and I'm not intersex. I was not born with a congenital difference that made me born with, you know, uh, ambiguous genitals. I was assigned female at birth. Simple. That's no big deal, you know. But unfortunately, within the trans and intersex community, there, there can be a little bit of overlap and issues with that. So I'm kind of curious as to how we can look at streamlining people's, particularly identity documents, so they're all the same. because. During those checklists that people have around gender, every time someone goes to a clinic or gets a referral from a doctor or uh, signs up to Stan TV, whatever it is, that's a gender checkpoint. Every time we use a toilet, it's a gender checkpoint. Every time someone uses gendered language to refer to us, that's a gender checkpoint that most people are not consciously aware of. Um, and I would just like to see gender completely trashed as a concept. Because um, I, I really would, because I, I listen to things about, you know, with gender equality, and I understand that, of course, the, the historical nature of, of feminist theory is related to queer theory, and I'm so grateful for the feminist background that we do have. However, there also comes a point where I think we need to let some of that go, because femininity does not belong to females, and masculinity does not belong to men. We know this. And now that we've created this new medical long language, whereby doctors now say, well, they talk about someone's experience of gender, not gender identity, because as most people know, gender is in flux, it's always changing. And someone's experience of gender might not be how they present, it might not be what pronouns they might use, it might not be where they go to the toilet that day or the next day. So I think we've, we've taken apart a lot, we've deconstructed a lot, I would like to see 
uh, more legislative protective stuff in there for people who are trans. I'd like to see Australia actually do what it was supposed to do with the Australian Human Rights Commission legislation of 2013 and not make it discriminatory for people to access basic medical care. Um, and yeah, visibility would be good too, for sure. I mean, my, my dream is to see a trans person on the back of a bus, a model on the back of the bus that is so ambiguous, you, it doesn't matter. Um, so that's what I would like. So it's, it's 70 years since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and I'm going to talk about something different, which is non-human rights. Um, so in some ways, this is a weird gig to get. Um, but I suppose I, I think of it as a useful way to reflect on both the success and the positivity that that declaration provided, but also the constraints it provided as a tool for thinking about oppression and minimizing violence in our lives. Um, and how it could go forward. Um, one of the, I mean, the document itself was, and I, it's something I teach my students, was a remarkable breakthrough historically. If you think about it, um, there hasn't been a point before that where there was global, let's say consensus, at least agreement, but maybe consensus today that humans were fundamentally owed rights. So to me, there's something fascinating about this document. It's a powerful instrument. The flip side is that it had a number of constraints. Um, so, and I might mention this later. Um, one of the constraints is if you read the Universal Declaration, it's written in gender-specific language. It refers to men. Right? So apparently, humans represented men. Um, and certainly feminists and feminist activists have pointed out that actually lots of the concerns raised in the Universal Declaration don't necessarily translate to the experience and the regular violence and violation that women experience. Another constraint, I think, is creating this idea that humans have a special form of dignity that other beings don't have. Um, it doesn't, it's not necessarily uh, written in the Declaration, but I think it's fair to say that this was somehow implied. Um, when we say that humans are owed rights because they're human, we're almost implying that humans are special in some sort of way and relying on some idea that humans have some sort of dignity and perhaps some priority over everyone else or everything else. Um, when I reflect on the Universal Declaration, I wonder, does the Universal Declaration capture some of the negative stuff that we're dealing with today uh, in a range of issues, but I'm thinking particularly of climate change. Um, the reality of climate change is it shows that we humans have completely wrecked our planet because we believe we are somehow special. Does the Universal Declaration partly talk to that experience? But I also wonder, given our reality with the way that we treat animals globally, does that sense of being special uh, or our auto-assigned sense of dignity, does that play into that scenario too? Um, this year we will have killed over 70 billion animals for our food supply, land animals, and over 3 trillion fish. Um, those numbers do my head in. They're just monstrous. Does our sense of dignity, our sense that we are somehow special, give us license to treat nature and other beings in the way that we do. There's also another flip side to the dignity problem. Um, as Danny mentioned, I've been involved in the last few years in a campaign to 
um, apply the torture convention to the treatment of people with disability, largely focused in Australia. And we're particularly interested in the way that people with disability are treated in institutional contexts and the use of certain practices like a forced restraint or chemical restraint. So for example, when somebody is uh, physically bound for long periods of time, um, as is routine in many mental health facilities. Um, what I keep coming across when I look at uh, the, the use of these forms of extreme violence against people with disability is the sense that people with disability are asking for their dignity to be recognised. They're often asking to be recognised as human in the way that they haven't been recognised as human for much of the time since the Universal Declaration uh, was agreed upon. But I think there's something interesting to think about this from the animal perspective. Does the fact that we believe that humans have some dignity that animals don't play into this problem? If we treated animals in a better way, or if we treated nature in a better way, would we be kinder to humans as well? Um, that's a kind of philosophical question, the kind of thing that an academic would ask. Um, but I, I suppose I wanted to, with that, make the point that I think the Universal Declaration is an invitation for our aspirations. In some way, the, the document was an invitation over the 70 years that followed for different groups to make claims on rights, and these were groups that were systematically excluded from that declaration. So if we think about when I mentioned that the Universal Declaration contained very strongly gender-specific language, this actually led to a number of different movements to claim rights. For example, feminists who claim rights are uh, pointing out that actually women should be entitled to rights, and these, these rights were not captured in the Universal Declaration. This is why, for example, we have a convention on the elimination of discrimination against women, because of the Universal Declaration just didn't do a good job in the first place. As Danny has outlined, um, there are also a range of questions around the place of gender and how this should form a basis for the, the award of rights. The challenge that's faced by many people who are trans or gender non-conforming is that we've set up legal institutions that only award rights where you, where you compulsorily identify according to set gender status, which of course is absurd if we step back from it because anybody should be owed rights regardless of their gender identification. So I think to me there's an invitation with the Universal Declaration to unpack who is the human, but also who should be owed these rights in the first place. So in a way it's a question that is asked and it invites us to push the boundaries of those rights. Um, I, I have to say that I think there's been a lot of progress in pushing rights beyond the human. So a number of indigenous and environmental groups globally have been, for example, pushing for rights for nature. So arguing that, for example, rivers might have personhood or forests might be owed legal rights. Similarly, a number of animal rights people have been pushing for rights in a number of high-profile cases. So people may know in Argentina in 2016, um, some activists associated with the Great Ape Project uh, managed to secure legal rights for a great ape that was held in captivity. But I think, to me, the, the bigger questions are around the everyday relationships we have with animals and nature and whether rights can transform these. One of the questions that I'm often asked when it comes to thinking about animal rights is, but surely there are all these problems that human face, humans face. Shouldn't we address the problems that humans face before we go to, to animals or to nature? 
Um, and I think these are complex issues because the nature of politics and the nature of the politics of rights is that always, there's always contestation and we always have to prioritise in order to gain something. We can't take on everything at once. That said, I think there are some unique opportunities globally for addressing the rights of both humans, of humans, animals and nature altogether. Let me give you one example that I've been really interested in. At the moment, um, around 50% of the world's fish comes through industrialised fishing. This is an environmental disaster. So basically, we humans have industrialised fishing and have wreaked havoc on the oceans, literally emptying them of fish. Scient some scientists suggest that by 2050, there won't be fish in the ocean for us to catch. So this is the scary news when it comes to industrialised fishing. Apart from that environmental bad story, um, fishing is also a disaster for, the, for humans and often many of the humans that are involved in the industry. Particularly in the Asia-Pacific region, the use of low wages and forced labour is endemic in the industry, both in fish capture and fish processing. Unfortunately, much of the seafood ends up on the plates of consumers in the global north, i.e. consumers who don't need more, more food. Right? Um, so there's a, a human cost story in relation to fishing. But finally, there's actually a cost for fish too. Um, there's emerging evidence and a consensus globally that fish feel pain and emotion. In fact, fish feel pain and emotion in a way that is non-differentiated from land-based animals. In fact, many scientists point out that, today point out that Fish um, have experiences and uh, feelings of sensation and the capacity to feel pain that is no different from most of the land-based animals we eat. However, we apply zero welfare to almost all global industrial fishing. Um, this means that fish endure uh, long-suffering as they're dragged up through the ocean in nets um, or left to die on decks uh, suffocating. To me, there's a unique opportunity when we look at industrial fishing to take on both environment, human rights, and animal rights at the same time by working together. So I think there are, there's a unique opportunity for alliance and one that doesn't pit different social movements against each other. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to open the floor now. If you can just signal to me and the mics will come to you. My name's Anthony. I'm studying uh, psychology and physics here at Sydney Uni. Thank you all so much for your talks. Um, that was something new I learned about fish having yeah, similar emotions to us. That was yeah, quite, quite shocking to me. Um, yeah, thanks again. Uh, question for Danny, actually. I, I seem to notice, I'm not sure if, like, if it's just me, but I seem to notice that there is much more celebration like at Mardi Gras in the LGBTQ community of trans women um, rather than trans men. Like, maybe it's just more visible to me, like uh, men who've transitioned to, to, to be uh, women. Is this uh, something that you've noticed? Um, what, uh, yeah, what's your opinions on it and should, should anything sort of be done? 
I think um, traditionally in the queer community, we've hypersexualized a lot of things in order to delineate us as different than the heteronormative, essentially. And I think some of the knock-on effect of that hypersexualization is that is is generally put into people who manifest in in a feminine feminine presentation. Um, uh, added to that, I think um, you know the socialization of someone assigned male at birth is a little bit different as well. Um, and I don't think, if we're talking binary stuff here, I don't think generally trans men are given the capacity to hold on to their, their femininity, so to speak. And I think that there's a certain kind of value put into that that is different than what someone might get if they were gender congruent as male. Um, and I have noticed that. I noticed that particularly a lot in Thailand where um, I spoke to a few ladyboys who prefer the term trans women uh, who were actually getting photos taken with, a, with straight cis guys from all over the world for five bucks. And then I was having conversations with Toms in Thailand who were trans men that can't access testosterone because of the nature of the, the medical system there. So it's not just in Australia, I think, and I have noticed that. I do think that that's... Uh, something that with the visibility with more trans masculine presenting people could be addressed definitely um, I'm working on it <laughs> um, I've got a comment um, as someone who used to work at study in this university and um, when a very contentious issue came up and we said to one of our leaders tell me what do you value about art? The answer was, we value art like the Greeks. And I went and studied that idea and wrote extensively and then realised, of course, the Greeks only valued art for the elite. And what the elite do is they divide us all every one of us in every way they can. And I decided I wanted to engage in social justice because there was too much that was wrong. There is too much to divide us. And that uh, words and research weren't enough. That we have to find a way to unify. We have to find a way to um, maybe to paraphrase, I think what the woman that left was saying is that the value of economy, the economy alone, is killing us all. And we need all of you to be activists on that issue and we need to come together. I, um, my particular attention will be to Larissa, because I do actually have a question. Um, my perception is that, uh, and going along to lots of talks, single greatest thing is a threat of nuclear winter. Uh, uranium mining for weapons grade is not only a serious critical issue to the Northern Territory elders who came down a few weeks ago and to what you're you probably experiencing all the time, the separation of children, of family, people from land, is not only a desecration, a disgrace that we should all feel ashamed of, but it's also, I can't think of anything on the religious term there, but for the grace of God, go we. 
This marginalisation is going to kill us all. What happens to you is going to happen to me. It's only a matter of time between now, who's marginalised, who's not. So, um, Larissa, I'd like you perhaps to speak to the concern about uh, specifically land loss, um, the continued reduction of uh, uh, the, the people losing their land, being put under increased pressure, incarceration, removal, and the fear that there for the grace of God go we if there's a nuclear winter within the next 30 years. I talk to that. Um, I think that one of the things that one of the things I really reflect on is when you go out and talk to um, TOs or Aboriginal communities, which is a lot of the work that I do over the last, especially um, really concentrated in the last five years, is talk about the idea about um, what we call sacrifice zones and the fact that there are communities in this country um, and around the world which are typically First Nations communities that are expected to be on the forefront of climate impacts, so they will experience climate impacts um, more readily because uh, I don't know the exact percentages off my brain at the right, right now, but like um, Indigenous peoples, it's on something like the high 90s, so like 90% of the biodiversity in the world, um, that land is actually occupied still by First Nations people. And so when we talk about people who actually live on... The, the land that needs to be regenerated in terms of looking after land, we're really talking about First Nations people who actually impacted, um, who actually take care of this land still to this day. Um, and that is so true within Australia. I remember like one of the first things I recognised was like um, from a lot of the work that my dad and my aunties and uncles have done in remote communities about where our remote communities are, where um, our Aboriginal communities are and actually where those ongoing impacts of climate change are. We talk about um, to mob about what's happening with mining in this country. There's a lot of people, um, you know, there's the Marcia Langtons of the world who, who really do believe that mining is a way out of the economic disadvantage that our communities face, but really the reports that come out show that we didn't benefit, Australia largely benefited off the global financial crisis. Aboriginal communities didn't because of attacks on things like the native title regime, like Howard's 10-point plan, which took the profit of these mines away from communities. I think like something like 60% of the mines in Australia are next to or, or in, it's all on Aboriginal land, but um, around discrete Aboriginal communities. And so when you talk about, um, you would have met the TOs and that sort of stuff that it came from MacArthur River as well, um, when you talk to people about that sort of stuff, like you're actually living the impacts of having poisoned water, you're living the impacts of seeing, you know, these pyretic rocks burning and that sort of stuff. Like, the, the First Nations movement in this country to protect and leave uranium in the mine, mining in, um, leave uranium in the ground is because people, like, there's sort of stories in, in terms of, like, um, song lines and talk about sacred areas and that sort of stuff, and then, like, there's stories that talk about not going into areas where uranium was prevalent because that country would make you sick. And these stories are thousands and thousands of years old. If you talk about the idea around in WA where, you know, people, uh, uh, Hancock first discovered where all the iron ore was because he, you know, you'd, you'd tie Aboriginal people up and then let them go and they'd lead them to water and then they'd find the rusty coloured water and that sort of, and that's how they found all these minerals within this country. And so when you look at the, the state of government 
the state of government policies today and the idea that you now have mining companies providing essential services for Aboriginal communities, this is not a conspiracy. This is intentional. Our communities are going without adequate housing, we're going without water, we're going without essential services. So, our, so then these mining companies come in like Euro, and then the, the native title on top of that only benefits people, like you only have any benefit from native title if you say yes to mining. You have the right to negotiate, but you don't have any right to say no unless you have land rights. And so all these things are the reason that our communities are in the state that they're in, and it's, a, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's not, it's, not, it's not an idea that, like, you know, there's reports coming out saying that we have not seen the benefit from mining, but continually, um, just this year, Jambana um, Indigenous uh, Institute put out a report saying that most, if not all, of the licences for fracking in the Northern Territory were gained in the absence of free, prior and informed consent. And that, when I remember that report being released and journalists being like, what does this mean? We have native title. I don't know how to report on this thing. It's like, you're forcing people under duress to make decisions about country because they're looking for the economic um, and to try and get out of disadvantage. But by the same time, we're like locking ourselves into mining and the impacts of mining, the front lines of mining, we're also locking ourselves into more negative impacts. And like, this is where we talk about going beyond climate action and the fact that the, really in this country, Australia is the largest exporter of coal and natural gas in the world. We have large deposits of uranium and Aboriginal people are on both sides of the coin um, when it comes to the impacts of extractive industries. And our policies are set up to benefit mining companies. Hi, thank you all. Um, an extraordinary panel. Um, my name is Anna and I'm interested to hear, I have a small child who now, as part of her daycare recites a acknowledgement to country and knows the word sustainability and knows what it means, not necessarily what it means, but what trans, what that actually means. Um, so I'm interested in the 70 years that lie ahead and the, and the, young, the youngest of people um, moving forward. And I guess it's, what I hear is that there's a, it's a very busy space and there are lots, there's lots and lots of work to be done. So I guess the question is to Dinesh really and perhaps to Larissa also about this idea of finding commonality among the various different rights movements and where, the, where people can come together and be, um, you know, cross-fertilise ideas and support each other and what kind of message do we have for the, the very youngest of the activists in the room? that what can they be taking forward in terms of where to now? Um, I think for me, one of the things that really, I guess, engages me in my responsibility to, to carry this forward and think about the future is the idea that our population base is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is flipped. And so over 50% of our, our population is under the age of 25 and we are the fastest growing population in the country. So we really need to engage our young people on our issues. And I think we need to be smarter than movements of the past. I get into back and forwards all the time with my aunties and uncles around like where the, you know, the land rights movement thought it won it and then kind of rested on their laurels and then you know, didn't keep the Australian public, not that it's their fault, but it, like the Australian public engaged in stuff and then we watched stuff get wound back in front of our faces. We watched ATSIC get wound up and we watched all these things um, that basically turned off our ability to have a say about things anymore. 
And like, if you look at the goodwill that happened, like uh, the idea around, you know, just the referendum and the idea that to be counted in the census, we don't, those kind of, that's why I'm going to support doesn't exist right now. Um, which means we need to be really intentional and we need to work across movements better. Um, and I just, there's, there's so much good advocacy that happens, but I think when advocacy is silent on whether it's issues of race, any kinds of, um, anything like that, then we're actually doing ourselves a disservice because a lot of these issues where we're at, we're in really critical places. Um, and I think that that's, I guess, the idea of a, where we need to go in modern day campaigning and, and um, advocacy. And I think for young people, young people, one of the things I say about working at GetUp is I really miss working with young people because they're very ambitious. Um, and intersectionality is a big thing with young people. If you're not talking about an issue and the intersectionality of it, they don't care. I want to talk about it, you're old. Um, and I, like, but I love that, do you know what I mean? And I think that we need to, one, like all the experts that are in the room and all the experts that are out there making decisions need to really talk to people who have lived experience and need to talk about intersectionality more. And I think our young people are doing amazing. So I think Larissa's really covered it, but I was just going to say, um, Something that I think is useful, and it's something that's missed with the Human Rights Challenge, because we often, and unfortunately I think this, is, this has come from a very legalistic reading of human rights, that human rights is just simply about a charter of protection of, you know, you are owed these particular rights in these circumstances. And what we miss is the invitation to imagine what kind of world we want to live in, which is the more aspirational, broader sense of what, what I think the Human Rights Project should be about. The other reason I think that's really interesting is that it changes the conversation. So if we concentrate on how we are all different and our individual identities and what we want as individuals, then that leads to the vision. The moment when we actually open up conversations about where do we want to go and what kind of world we want, that's when alliance becomes possible. To me, actually, I think human rights, that's where it has to go. And it has to move towards that conversation. Not, I mean, obviously it has a, a useful role in protecting individuals who've had fundamental rights removed from them. But it also has this other role, which is about facilitating conversation about what kind of society we want. And I just want to flag that if we think about climate change, um, it is one of the symptoms of the way that we have chosen to organise the planet since the Enlightenment. And that was a result of various histories, including the colonial project, including unfettered capitalism, which led us to this horrific point. So we have to untangle all of that. So I agree completely with Larissa that this needs to be a conversation about the kind of society we want, a society where we take on that history of racial uh, segregation and dispossession that was part of that, um, the way we've chosen to arbitrarily structure categories of gender or disability that strip people of rights, but I think also a conversation beyond the human about how do we want to engage with other beings too. I'm afraid there are going to be too many. Maybe what we could do is if I could collect questions and if I could ask you, and please take this request seriously to keep your questions short, then we can probably gather about five questions and then take it back to the floor. Um, so I think the lady there at the back, 
And then there was one here. Am I? Yeah, yeah, we'll start with that. So thank you very much for everyone for speaking. It was really um, great to hear from you all. My question's mostly directed toward Danny. Um, really interesting to hear, uh, hear your experience and your story. Um, in particular, I was interested when you said about the day when we abolished gender altogether. Um, I guess my very earliest brushings with gender was about, from a feminist point of view, gender being a social construction, particularly the kind of feminine gender as a means of oppressing women. Um, so I'm curious about the idea now when we talk about gender and we talk about gender congruence. And as someone who doesn't identify as trans, I can't help but think that I also don't necessarily identify as gender congruent, given I've always conceived of gender as a social construct aimed to oppress me. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that language and those terms around, you know, if you're not, if you don't identify as, as trans or gender non-conforming, does that mean that you are gender conforming? Uh, well, Danny, what I'm going to do is I'm going to collect and I'm going to give everybody a quick, yeah. Now I'll remind you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Laura, and I have a quick question for Naz and for Dulce. And that's, um, I was really struck by your examples of everyday activism and the everyday work of changing people's minds. Um, what can non-disabled Australians and people who occupy positions of white privilege uh, do to engage more in that work of everyday activism and changing people's minds? Thanks. It's one there in the middle. Yeah. Uh, my name's Lucy. I have a question for Dinesh. Um, very obviously into human rights, but animal and sort of environmental rights and justice are really, I think, becoming so pivotal um, now more than ever. And it's quite a practical question, but I'm wondering what you think are the things we can do right now to promote particularly animal welfare, because I often feel like with that issue, it's such a drop in the ocean kind of thing, and you go to supermarkets and you see this like mass production of animal products and uh, meat and dairy and so on, and it's sort of quite overwhelming because you think, you know, I'm just one person and there's so many billion of us. And so I'm wondering what are some practical measures that you think we can take? Hi. My, my name is Lima. I'm a, a, a blind person. I'm a, a retired a social worker. I want to take issue with the word about the younger people, as if I'm an old codger, as if you know that ageism that we come from an archaic sort of period. I fought the system left, right, and center. Uh, of you talk about intersectionality. I was uh, also educated here. I fought. The department left, right, and centre with 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 uh, 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 help, which 25 years ago I got very very little. But having said that, I think there is also a need for self advocacy, which I learned to practice. But what I'm saying is that that there is still, uh, 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 despite the fact of uh, ageism. Uh, which we all don't touch very much on, as if the younger people will save the world. We still old codgers still have a role to play. Thank you. Uh, there's, uh, I'm afraid I'm just going to take one more. I really do apologise. And if you could please make it brief, because I want to give everybody on the panel an opportunity to respond. 
Yeah, thank, thank you for the um, speakers. Um, I just wanted to um, find out what you thought. Are you optimistic about the future? I mean, it's 70 years since the Declaration of Human Rights and uh, it seems like the government's undermined all, like, you know, um, privacy laws and so on and, you know, that we've stopped the boats and all, you know, that. So, uh, like, human rights have been trampled on, so are you optimistic? Uh, so I might just start with Danny and go across, and if you just want to answer questions as you wish. Um, I'm not quite sure what the question was exactly already, but, um, I mean, at least the person that bung that up, I mean, they're smart enough to know that gender is just an approximation um, and there is no essentialist gender, it is a construct. Um, it's also much, I suppose, that I would like to see gender completely removed from all systems. As such, I would like the assumption around gender congruence. What I mean is, um, so psychiatry is now using the term gender congruence um, as being the, the diagnostic term instead of saying uh, 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 wanting to have a sex change or transsexualism. So that that's all, all changing now. Um, and that to me brings up, you know, the other stuff they talk about with having a, an experience of gender. And I think what I would like is for people's experience of gender to be honoured and to be respected, whatever that might be. And I, I understand that for you, you, you're educated enough to know that the appropriate form of femininity, how it's been constructed can be a very oppressive thing. But in me transitioning, I've discovered that that goes both ways, whether I'm read as male or female, which are both wrong. Um, I still feel that I experience a form of oppression because I can't leverage on being feminine or masculine anymore. So it doesn't really matter what we choose. I think there is still a form of policing around that that needs to be the removed question looked at. So that's what I mean by the, the, the end of gender, I suppose. Yeah. Does that answer that? Cool. <laughs> so the question was what a white Australian or a, someone in privilege can do. Um, I think one is acknowledge privilege. Two is don't be afraid to make mistakes. I think we live in a world that people are so afraid to offend someone or that we stop ourselves to try, you know? There is no mistakes. The only mistake is not to ask. The third is be active, be educated. Understand that your agency has a lot of weight in the way this world works. Vote. Oh my God, please vote. Vote for all those humans that we put in detention centers. Vote for all the kids in Nauru that are now being fed, you know, by a tube. Vote for all of us that we can't. Um, so for me, that's the basic. And also be conscious that in every conversation, there is always race, gender, religion, and disability presence. So be very aware of the power of your words and how you use them and how you raise your kids and how you raise younger generations. <clears throat> Don't be afraid to say, when I was younger, I used to make these and that mistakes, but now I have learned. I think acknowledging that we as community have made so many mistakes, but we are in a process, a non-stop process of <clears throat> being allies to populations that are marginalized is the most important thing, and I do feel very optimistic. When I see grandmothers holding bankers saying, let's 
they, you know, just bring these kids from Nauru. When I see my husband helping me when he's very tired, when I see my child standing here, when I see all of you on a Monday, this is what makes me stay. I always say that um, I was angry when I joined activism. I stay because I've witnessed love every day. And I will stay because we have the opportunity to change this world. And just the journey, it's worth it. So yeah, thanks. I think um, one of the biggest pieces of work that I do around especially training and engaging um, I don't really like the, the idea of like change agents, but in the idea of like engaging young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in activism and in these spaces of advocacy, in spaces where they've been told they don't have a place, they don't have a voice. And one of the most powerful things that we do or have done is to show young people how to make connection to their elders. Um, and through that gain not only knowledge of how fights, because you look at all the fights that we have before us, there's nothing that we have won that hasn't been won in the past. And I really resonate to the idea that every generation has to win the struggle again and it's always ongoing. There's never a point of like our aspiration always moves. Um, and so for, I guess for me, it's around connecting those movements. One of the, the, the bigger things that I do with young Aboriginal people is like go through, like what is the history of Aboriginal resistance in this country? And when you look at it, people are just like, wow, that's a lot of work. And then you talk about where are we now? How many of these things have gone backwards? And like getting people to step up into their responsibility and accountability. And I think that their GetUp is also a, 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 um, an organization that has a, a high percentage of members who are like older and also just like are just done with, with the political party system and just want to advocate on issues. And so I think that there's so much room for different people of whatever age to get involved in stuff. But I think even to the first person's comment who was like, who's in charge of human rights? I often get, um, I had a gap, national gathering, climate gathering, um, of about 70 traditional owner groups, and someone's like, who's in charge of climate change and how do we get a seat at the table? And it's like, there's not a table, do you know mm. what I mean? Like everybody, you know, people talk about, there's this meme that goes around that says that, you know, there's a problem with society, but we are society. And I feel like we're just educating people on their vote or talking about, you know, what our aspirations are. We all are responsible for where we're living right now and how what's happening and whether that's giving people who don't have voices, um, voices into spaces and that sort of stuff. And I think that for me, that's just the piece that gives me hope. I remember about seven years ago, there was a big um, sovereign embassy gathering down um, in Canberra for the anniversary of the ten, one of the anniversaries of the ten embassy, and people were talking about removing the social license for Invasion Day, for people to celebrate this day and say it's Australia Day. And if you look at what's happened over the last seven years, there are more people that come to Invasion Day rallies and talk about our issues than go to Australia Day events anymore. So I think there's hope. There's the idea that we can change it because we have won these fights in the past, and that's the thing that gets me engaged and also helps me engage other young people. Um, so I, I had a very hard question to ask, which is what, I mean, to, to respond to, which is what to do. On one hand, I think, so if you think about, I think if any social movement, there's some different dimensions of what action might look like. Some of it is individual and personal. And some of it is about how do we engage with social movements to make large-scale structural change. I think when it comes to animals, 
there's lots of resources now to think about how do we personally change our own lifestyles to reduce or reduce our own involvement in implicitly in the violence that the mass violence that animals experience. What's missing is the connection to large-scale structural change. Um, so I think largely animal movements have been disengaged, and it goes both ways from other social movements. I think that's where I think the main work needs to happen in the next seven years is actually making the connections between what is happening in animal advocacy and what is happening with other social movements. But I think there's some really fascinating connections. I just want to give, there's a few examples I can give, but I'll just give one quick one. Recently I was in Mexico and I met a bunch of activists who are involved in what they call a decolonizer food movement. Um, and they, the, the argument from this movement was that um, part of kind of the global hegemony of Western diets that um, local diets in South America had been taken over by burgers and chips and all that sort of stuff. Um, but as part of this, many of these activists literally advocate an, a vegan diet, a plant-based diet, because they argue that actually the traditional diet in this place was largely plant-based. So I think that to me is a really interesting example of a kind of intersectional approach to the problem. It is about recognising that um, globally our diets have been restructured, and this has had implications for racialized minorities across the planet, um, but animals are involved in this problem too. Um, so challenging that, that uh, the what, what we eat isn't just about making the world a better place for animals, it's also recognising that this connects with questions of gender, race, um, of how we want to live in the kind of society we want to be part of. So I'm also responding to um, the question that Dulce was talking about um, from a disability perspective. Um, the ways that people who do not have disabilities can sort of learn and um, engage with disability. Talk to us. Get to know us. Don't assume that you know everything about us. Don't assume that we always need your help. Feel free to ask if you see us in the street or wherever it might be. But don't be offended when we say no and don't assume you know how to provide the support if we say yes. Be careful about the language you use. Certain terms are not acceptable anymore and I still hear so many of them in everyday conversation um, when I'm, you know, wherever I might be. I also think that it's really important to know that whatever issue you feel passionate about, whether it's disabilities or climate change or whatever, I think we are in a space with technology and social media. We have the opportunity to engage and we have the opportunity um, to be change agents and to to encourage others and to provide our perspective more than ever before and so I think the final question that we had was uh, you know are you optimistic and I personally am I really am I think we have the ability and the mechanism to do whatever it is we feel is right to get our issue on the agenda it might be slow to make change, but we have the power to do it, and everyone does. And 
to kind of go back to what Larissa was saying, who owns human rights or who's in charge of it, we all are. All of us sitting here and all of you sitting there, we are all able to make change in this space. Um, And I think a really good example is the kids who left school last week to go and fight for climate change because it is their world, it is their planet as well, and they have a say, and I think it was fantastic to see that happening. Thank you. Uh, You know, working in the field of justice or rights, as I said in my opening remarks, or just living in this world can be tough at the moment. It can be tough to be connected and to keep your head above water. And it's, it's so precious to be nourished by the work that people are doing. And I know that, uh, that I will be nourished, deeply nourished by what all of you have said. And, and each of you have said something so brilliant. And I'm sure that you all have your, your, joyful nuggets that you got, but but Danny talking about the every day, you know, every day when you walk out the door, fill out a fill out the, you know, the gender box on stand, that activism is an everyday activity. Uh, Dulce talking about what you said about love, that you were love is a dirty word in human rights. Love is a dirty word at the university, that that it was love that brought you there and love that keeps you there. Uh, Larissa, I think that we ought to start an organisation called There Is No Table. That's just completely fantastic. There is no table or there is a table but there are actually lots of tables and there's a whole lot of space around the table. Uh, That's brilliant. And Dinesh, just reminding us that the Declaration of Human Rights and where we're at now with human rights isn't just about what we shouldn't be doing, it's also about the world that we want what is the world that we want? That, that, that to be reminded that it's aspirational, it's not just punitive. And Naz, he's lucky to have me. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so just so, so much wisdom, so much inspiration. Uh, one of the, uh, the Universal Declaration in many ways has been a great success in building institutions, in articulating laws. And I think one of the, one of the flip sides of that is that it's become a bit of an elite enterprise. It's been taken away from this sense of it being something that really belongs to us. And that's something that all of you said, it belongs to us. And if it's going to mean anything in the next 70 years, it's going to be about recapturing that sense that this is something that we want, that we feel love for, that we feel joy about, and that we feel is possible. So I'm sure that all of you also feel nourished and inspired. I hope that we can go out into what is often a difficult and a world saturated with negative stories with a sense that that it does belong to us and that 70 years that are coming can be 70 years that fulfil those aspirations. Please join me in thanking the six speakers. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.